And then our Old Testament reading and our preaching text for tonight, Psalm 121. Uh, this, is, this was an important psalm. It, it has been probably to many of us here in our Christian life. This is one of those very comforting kind of psalms. And um, Ann and I, when we were engaged and, and um, getting ready for marriage, this was a, a psalm that was important to us. And um, we had it in our wedding then. We had, a, a, I think, an uncle read it and, and I think someone else sang it. But um, this is a wonderful song for God's people. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. And I've entitled this message, May the Lord Keep You. Our God, our very present help in trouble. This psalm speaks to the believer in Jesus Christ of our complete safety in Jesus Christ. Whatever trial, whatever trouble, whatever difficulty, whatever distress, whatever anguish of heart or pain of body, whatever disappointment in this world, we are safe in our Savior. And how are we to make use of this knowledge? First of all, we should find assurance of his love and grace. How could our God speak these kind of words that we find here in Psalm 121? How could he speak such gracious words to us, his church, if he was not full of love and grace toward us? When the devil or the world or our own weak and unstable hearts seek to cause us as those trusting in Jesus Christ to trust our safety, spiritual or physical, Remember this promise, and others like it in God's holy book. God says he is keeping us, he is watching over us, no matter what happens to us. So find comfort in times of grief, knowing that this promise is still, still true, even when we've lost that person we love. Find patience and perseverance in times of trial and tribute, trouble, and find hope during time of suffering uh, and times we're tempted to despair. This is why this wonderful psalm is a favorite for so many. Let me just, I want to share this anecdote. Uh, In the First Church of Merrimack, New Hampshire, where I pastored for 34 years, there had been um, one ministry between mine and Reverend Bruce Gordon's. And Bruce Gordon had come there 17 years he, he was there 17 years. So it goes back quite a ways here. 67, I think, is when he went. And the church had gone liberal. And under his ministry, the church came back to the gospel. And there was a lot of um, bitterness among those. It was a mixed crowd there for a while. There were those that were still the old-time liberals. Didn't want anything to do with this. Bruce was crazy for believing this old-time gospel in their minds. And there were those who got converted. 
and one man was struggling, and then his little daughter died, and he just got bitter. And um, he was in the choir, though, and they, they sang Psalm 121, and um, I think that either that Sunday or that Thanksgiving service, they sang it, and Bruce preached on, you know, God's goodness to us. And um, I don't know if he was a Christian, just stumbling, or he actually became a Christian, but the whole thing turned around for Robert. And uh, Psalm 121 was one of his favorites because um, that was when he became convinced that God had not deserted him uh, in the time that his little daughter had died. This is one of the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, these songs were sung by the Old Testament pilgrims as they went out Mount Zion to the temple to worship Jehovah God. They're Psalms 120 through 134. And one very interesting pattern pointed out by O. Palmer Robertson in his wonderful little book that I highly recommend, The Flow of the Psalms, is how the priestly benediction, which I opened with tonight, we looked at it together, number six, the priestly benediction appears to be purposely worked out more fully in these Psalms of Ascent. So this is just some background before we actually look at Psalm 121, but for example, Psalm 128 and 134 both speak very clearly of the Lord blessing his people. The Lord bless you and keep you, you know, blessing his people. Psalm 121 speaks of the Lord keeping his, his people. The Lord bless you and keep you. Psalm 123 and 130 speak of the Lord being gracious to his people. Lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace and uh, turn his face towards you and be gracious towards you. And it's the same word, though sometimes it's translated be gracious and sometimes be merciful. Um, and um, so that's Psalm 123 and 130. And then Psalm 120, 122, 125, and 128 speak of the Lord giving peace to his people. You know, turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. The one that's, that I find really interesting is Psalm 128. And I'm not preaching on that I'll just give you my outline, or really the outline of the song. Um, There's a bringing together of the whole main point. Psalm 128 is kind of an elaboration on on the whole priestly benediction. So verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 128, the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, Verses 3 and 4, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And verses 5 and 6, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So he's, he's... the, the psalmist and those who put together the Psalter, um, I think really had in mind uh, the, the priestly benediction. So this evening, we're looking at the Lord keep you. Keep you. And I do want to remind you, and I, uh, I think it's important we always keep in mind, in our English translations, when the word Lord in the Old Testament is all in capital letters, that's I am, that's Jehovah, that's Yahweh. Um, if it's capital L and small ORD, it's, it's Lord in the sense of a master. And God is sometimes called the master. And he uses, that's called Adonai. Uh, but when it's Yahweh, they want to make a distinction for us in English. It's all in capital letters. And that's, that's who we're looking at here. Uh, the Yahweh God, Jehovah God. The great I am is keeping us. 
And how do, how do we um, make proper use of what is affirmed here that God keeps us? Well, the you and the yours in Psalm 121 are masculine singular in the Hebrew. Now, I don't know how Danish is, but um, I know that, that um, different languages, you know, we have this word you. We used to have two forms, thou was you singular, you was you plural. We lost our, our um, you singular, which didn't help. But in some languages, you have a lot of different words for you. You've got to memorize them. And that's true in New Testament Greek uh, or in Old Testament Hebrew also. And here it's a masculine singular. So is this about Christ or about us? Well, it is about Christ. I think, I think a large portion of the Psalms, the first application is probably Christ as the son of man, the king over God's people, you know, the deliverer over God's people. And um, this is about Christ as the true son of man. This is part of his sinless perfection. And full righteousness, his, his absolute trust in the Heavenly Father. Jesus, in his human nature, though he's also God, anyways, I don't understand the, how this worked in practice, you know, how what I sometimes have referred to as the psychology of Jesus. I don't, I don't know what was going on there, it's way beyond me. But as the man, one of the ways he was the perfect man was his, he trusted in the Father. He had, he had the kind of faith in the Father that we were supposed to have and, and failed to have because of our sin. And so he trusted the Father to keep him, you see. Uh, he did not look to creaturely sources for deliverance or success, but as he puts it in the Gospel of John, to the Father who sent me. He keeps saying that, the Father who sent me. And, uh, but the church has not been wrong probably since the first day this psalm was written, to also claim this as God's promise to all true believers in God's gracious revelation. And particularly in the new covenant to all who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. When I preach through the, the psalms, I often would say, okay, first of all, how would this psalm be speaking of Christ, the Messiah, the victory that God would give, the Father would give to him? And then I'd remind us that we are in Christ by faith. We're in spiritual, eternal union with him. And um, because we're in him by gospel faith, what's true of him is often true of us. Whereas he is kept by the Heavenly Father and enabled to accomplish the atoning work that he was sent to do. In union with Christ, we are kept by the Heavenly Father and have... um, the right and privilege of claiming to be kept by faith. Now, here's something to think about. This is true of more than one psalm. The psalmist is obviously in trouble, and he's looking to Jehovah God for help and trusting in Jehovah God. But we usually don't know what the particular trouble was. You know, most of the psalms, we don't know that. A few of them, the... The original inscriptions, some of those inscriptions go back as far as the text it does itself. The, a song of ascents isn't something we've added. It's as early a copy as we have of the Psalms has that there. And there are a few who, you know, say something like, you know, Doeg the Edomite was persecuting David. And we get some idea of what, what was happening. But in a way, it's very interesting that for many of them, we don't know what particular trouble the psalmist was dealing with. And that's actually better for us. 
Because you see, then whatever trial or trouble we face, spiritual or physical, we're to trust that Jehovah God is my keeper and the shade on my right hand. And the psalm ends by reminding us that we're to trust that that will be the case forever and ever. If, if David was dealing, you know, let's say he was just dealing with Goliath, we might have a tendency to restrict how we applied it. But since there's just some trouble out there he's facing, and he seems to believe that whatever the trouble is, as a believer, we need to trust the Lord is keeping us, then whatever troubles we're having, we can make application at that point. So first, verse 1, where does our help come from? I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. This is the most basic question for rational creatures in a broken world such as ours. Where can we get the real and lasting help that we know we need? It's interesting. I lift up my eyes to the hills. I think probably um, he's thinking of this idea of reflection. You know, we don't. We don't reflect a whole lot in our society, and it shows up, too. You know, we don't take time to think or reflect on things. A friend of mine said he, he'd like to take some time every day. This is a, this is a scholar that's kind of name-known. I used to do lunch with him when he pastored near where I, I pastored, and he told me he'd just want to sit sometimes, maybe for 15 minutes, and just do some reflection, meditating. And it worried Amer- his fellow Americans around him. What's wrong? Why aren't you doing something? So he said he got so he would put a book in front of him because uh, that was the only thing that would keep them from, from getting nervous about him sitting there apparently doing nothing. But his point was is that other cultures, you know, do still take time to reflect. And uh, so I, I think what's happening here, how many of us have been out in, in nature, maybe early in the morning, looking off into the horizon or looking at the mountains or looking at the ocean, and we start reflecting on some big issues. I have. I have looked up at high mountains and thought of how big God was, or uh, same thing with looking out across the ocean. And I think what he's saying, he's, I'm looking at my eyes to the hills here, I'm reflecting, where does my help in life really come from? Now, why do we need help? Think of our, our many needs. Of course, first and foremost is our need to be reconciled to God, to deal with our sin, to survive the horrible consequences of our sin. You know, in words, getting saved is our first need. But there are a lot of other needs we have. There are broken relationships in life, broken hearts, sometimes due to betrayal or failure on our part and the part of others. There's bad news, uh, death. There's pain and weakness in spirit and in body. Uh, there's finding ultimate meaning or purpose. You know, I, I don't think anywhere apart from the idol of divine revelation can anybody find uh, a secure sense of ultimate purpose. Only if there is a, a creator who's made himself known to us can we find that. Uh, deliverance from despair and hopelessness. Now, uh, a non-theistic view of the universe, a, a view of the universe that leaves God out of the picture, will look for help in things of this world, or look for help in ourselves, or in other creatures like ourselves, or in tools, or weapons, or toys. A theistic view of the universe, a, a view of the universe that, that always takes into consideration there being a true God, 
by definition, should look to divine power and divine wisdom for help to the ultimate deliverance. But more particularly, a distinctly Christian view of the universe, which according to the word of God means a biblical understanding of ultimate reality looks to God as revealed in the unique person in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And we come and we hear God's word preached. We partake of the Lord's Supper, are, are reminded of uh, him and his redemptive work, his death in particular. And we're pointed to him and his atoning work as our ultimate and final help. So how would we answer, where does my help come from? If we look to the hills in reflection and meditation and say, uh, from whence comes my help, what is the answer that, that we have? Well, he says in verse 2, our help is from Jehovah, our creator. My help comes from the Lord, Lord in all capital letters, who made heaven and earth. The psalmist does not hesitate. The psalmist is not apologetic. And neither should we hesitate or be apologetic to speak up and to say, my help is from Jehovah God, the true God, the one who made all things, both the heavens and the earth. Again, Jehovah or Yahweh, um, you know, the Lord in all capital letters, you know, in the, in the, the, um, in the Christian church, we, we coined a term. It's, it's interesting. It has to do with Hebrew letters, but we used Greek language to coin the term. Uh, tetragrammaton in Greek means four letters. And in the Hebrew, um, that statement where God says, you know, uh, Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God says, say I am sent, sent you. That's Jehovah or Yahweh. It's a form of the state of being verb. It's four letters which in English would look like Y-H-W-H. And um, actually, the I don't want, I got off on a sidetrack here. The Jews didn't want to share with the Gentiles what the vowel sounds were. They, they didn't want us using the word. And um, so there's been all kinds, you know, um, um, there was a time they thought it was Jehovah, and that's fine, that's become an English word for, for God. But actually, almost for sure, that would not fit the Hebrew language. Probably something like Yahweh. But it is the sign of I am. The first time you read that, that's kind of a strange thing, isn't it? God says, here's my name, I am. I am that I am. And what, what are things we, we derive from that? And again, I just want to go through this quickly as a summary. But I am is the one without beginning or end. He's eternal. I just am. Uh, he's the one who never changes. You know, we, we're always changing. And um, from our viewpoint as Christians, we're glad we are always changing because we're never in this world what we ought to be. But uh, he's the one who never changes. I am, I am. Uh, there's a sense of timelessness with God. Uh, I am is also reminding us that this is the one who's claimed to be the only true and living God, the God of the Bible. He said to Moses, this is, this is a revelation I'm making to you, my covenant people. You know, the, uh, the word Allah is nothing more than the Arabic word for God. 
And the Christian Arabic-speaking people also say Allah, because it's just the word for God. And um, we have our word God, but it's not just the Christians that use that word. And uh, in Greek, it was theos. And um, in, in Hebrew, it was Elohim. But Yahweh, or Jehovah, the I Am, this was not used by the other religions and by other nations. This was a particular kind of like God's, God's personal name he's giving to his people. And so it, it, it speaks of the God who enters into this covenant of grace with sinners. As they trust his covenant promises by faith, a faith they have because of his grace, he enters into this relationship with them. So it's the God who is always truth, always speaks truth, and always is to be trusted by his people. That's the one who keeps us. That's why I went through that, because we need to understand who it is that is keeping us as the people of God in Christ. He says he's the maker of heaven and earth, or it could be translated the heavens and the earth. He's the creator of all things that have been made. And the New Testament tells us this was done by God the Son, the eternal word, John 1, verses 1 through 7. That the Father created all things through his Son. Colossians also says that, as well as does Hebrews chapter 1. The heavens and the earth speak of the whole created universe. All the stars, all the planets, everything both physical and spiritual, including humankind as male and female, and even the angels of heaven. This is who is keeping us. The one who created all things. And doesn't it make sense for the believer to trust in Jehovah God, maker of all things? There's, there's a reasonableness to this. You know, that's true always of God's truth, isn't it? Once you see it, once the Holy Spirit opens up to you, um, let's say the gospel way of salvation, then it's like, wow, how could I have ever seen it any other way? What else could, how else could God forgive sinners and still be just you know you you see you see it once you see it you really see it and once we understand who God is well who else should we trust who else has the wisdom the knowledge the power the goodness of the true and living God he made all things as we've been seeing for these two weeks now he controls all things he's the same yesterday today and forever he has no beginning will have no end He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He's omnipresent. You can't go anywhere, and he's not there. So who is above him? Who can be trusted more than he can be trusted? And yet, yet, as uh, the people of Jesus Christ, we still need to be reminded to look to him for help. We still need to be reminded we're not yet perfect in our faith as our Savior was when he fulfilled what it meant to be the Son of Man. Remember, the Son of Man, part of that is the man of perfect trust in the Heavenly Father. And our trust isn't perfect yet. And so we have to be reminded. We we need to be reminded he's worthy. We need to be reminded he's able. He's good. We need to be reminded he actually commands us to trust him for help. We need to be reminded he promises to help us when we come to him. 
Uh, one minister friend of mine for years now, we've joked about how sometimes prayer is like the last resort. That <laughs> that shouldn't be for us as Christians, you know. Um, he he's you know he reminded me he'd heard Christians say things like, "Well, I guess there's nothing else we can do but pray," and he would joke say, "Oh no, has it come down to that?" You know, as if. No, that's instead of being the first thing we think of. You know, we too, uh, as those Old Testament saints, need to be, be reminded that this is our help, Jehovah God. But what does, he, what does he do for us as we trust in him, those of us who are in Christ by faith? Verses 3 through 7. Verse 3. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He will not allow your foot to be moved. This can be also translated... He will not permit the shaking of your foot. And it could mean uh, he'll keep you on the right path. He won't allow your foot to be moved aside from his way. Here, remember, this is a song of ascents. The original singers are going up Mount Zion on pilgrimage to worship the true God. And the true God will keep them in this endeavor. So that they obey his command and come and worship him. In other words, uh, we, we, we strive after faithfulness by grace and by faith. And God also promises in his faithfulness to keep us faithful. But not just for that holy day of public worship. Jehovah keeps his elect in Christ by delivering us from false doctrine, false religion, evil practice, false worship. Yes, we have means of grace we're commanded to make use of or to study the Bible Uh, deliberately, while depending on the grace of the Savior, to live in obedience to the Word of God. But this is not, in the end of the day, all up to us in our weakness. But Him keeping us, even using the Word of God, even using our faithfulness that He works in us, um, this is all guaranteed by His grace and by His promise. I remember telling people, remember, the means of grace aren't the end uh, but the means you know I don't, I don't feel good that I'm a good Christian because I read my Bible and pray every day or because I come to church every Lord's day I read my Bible and pray and I do that with God's people when I gather for worship as a means to an end, the end is to glorify God and to be strengthened by his grace the means of grace are like tools that the Holy Spirit makes use of by his own plan to strengthen us and to build us up and to encourage us. And so we don't even rely on our use of the means of grace, though if you're, you're relying on God's grace, you will make use of those means because that's how he, he promises to help us. So uh, if the ideal is, um, you know, the ideal could be then that the Lord will make sure we don't get off track as we, we look to him. I was reflecting on that this week. I, I thought um, there have been a lot of people who have gotten totally off track from the biblical truth. People that were that grew up being taught the Holy Trinity and the deity of Christ and and uh, Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross, who have later walked away from that. To get here, we drive through a tra- town that has a Trinitarian church, congregational church. And a Unitarian Congregational Church. And I told Ann, just my, my knowledge of the history of the thing, 
that in some of the towns, the original congregational church in the 1700s, and some of them a little bit later in the 1800s, became Unitarians and denied the, 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 the truth of God as the Holy Trinity and the, the atoning work of Christ. So then another church would start in town call, calling itself the Trinitarian Church because those are the people still at that time adhering to uh, the uh, apostolic faith. In other places, uh, the original church hangs on to a Trinitarian view and so a group within, affected by that liberalism that was going around at the time, started their Unitarian church. You and I could be Unitarians. You and I could be Jehovah Witnesses. You and I could be atheists. Um, I, I know for me, and I'm, I'm pretty sure if you're here, to, you know, listening to God's word, you'll probably agree with this. I was, I'm not smart so that I was able to figure out what was the truth or not. There are a lot of competing uh, philosophies and religions out there, and it's God's grace alone that we have believed the truth. It's God's grace alone that keeps us in the truth. And it's important we understand that, and, and it's a comfort to us. You know, things can get really, really confusing, but if we keep our focus on the Lord and on his word, he says, I'll keep you. Now, if the idol is of the foot being shaken, that's another possible translation. Um, the idol then may be the Lord is guaranteeing that nothing will be allowed in our lives as his people who are in Christ that will totally destroy us, totally throw us down, defeat us you know, with a final kind of defeat. No matter what happens, we can keep on keeping on. Keep on following the Son of God to glory. By grace alone, through faith alone, a faith in the Savior alone. He will not permit my foot to be moved. But, and I move on then, to he will keep me. And he says this four times in the song. That's why I see it as the theme of the song. Verse 3, he who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, behold... You know, what, when he says, behold, he's saying, pay attention to this. Okay, pay attention to this. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. In verse 8, the Lord shall preserve. But it's the same Hebrew word that in verses 3 and 4 they translated keep. So when it says the Lord shall preserve your going out and coming in, it's the same word. So if you, if you stayed consistent, it would be the Lord shall keep your going out and your coming in. And then verse 7 uses parallelism, Hebrew parallelism. That's the Hebrews, instead of rhyming, like we have in much of our uh, the English-speaking world for poetry, they just say the thing again in different words uh, to emphasize it. And um, so verse 7, the Lord shall keep you from all evil. Then he says it again, the Lord shall keep your soul. If he's keeping your soul, he's keeping you from evil. He will keep you in him, in Christ, in faith, in repentance. This psalm uh, at least implies the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. He will keep you through all trials and troubles, both spiritual and physical, both now and forever. He will keep you from all evil, spiritual evils, physical evils, temporal evils, eternal evils. Therefore, he keeps your soul your immortal soul, 
before and in him, in Christ. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He will keep you. And then verses 5 and 6, he is our shade or our shadow. The shade at our right hand. The right hand was that place of the closest and most important. Uh, Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And uh, your right hand help would be that, that helper that you, uh, was most important to you and that you depended on for help. The Lord is our shade at our right hand. Uh, it can be translated either shade or shadow. Probably shade is the best, and that's what most of our translations have chosen. Uh, he says, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Uh, he could be thinking of, as far as the sun by day, uh, you know, we're, we're thinking of being closer to the equator. The bright sun in the afternoon, maybe you're trying to make your way through desert or semi-desert, and how dangerous that sun can be. And so he, he's using that as a metaphor. To the Lord is like a shade that keeps you from those harmful rays of the the bright midday sun. And then he says, or the moon by night. Now, the moon by night, I try to think of what he might mean there. You know, if you were were, uh, hiding from enemies at night, actually, a full moon would not be your friend, right? Full moon, I mean, it's amazing... um, you know, have you ever been called out in the woods accidentally and it got dark before you got out of the woods? That that's scary. It really is. It's 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 dark. But if there's a full moon, that's a different story. And so he may mean that God is the shadow in which we hide from our enemies and from all danger. So we need protection. We need a hiding place. We need someone to watch over us and keep us from the attacks and hatred of our enemies. We live in a a dangerous and evil world. And Jehovah God is that shade or shadow of protection. Well, when does he keep us? Let's think about the time element here. And this is in verses 3 and 4 and verses 6 and 8. All the time right now in this world. Even when it doesn't seem like it or feel like it or look like it. Faith is, if we live by faith, we're not living by sight or by how we feel. We're living by God's promise. We're claiming God's promise. God does not slumber, means he's always awake and watchful over us. Verse 3. Some years ago in Nashua, New Hampshire, uh, some... Uh, I felt sorry for them. The family, the, the lady had to work by day and the, the man by night and they had a child. And um, this little girl, three or four year old, was found walking out in the street in Nashua, which just makes you shudder almost, the neighborhood she was in. But thankfully people found her and they, they got hold of the police. And the poor guy had worked all night and uh, had fallen asleep and he had slept through the time he normally would get up to sleep. So the little girl got up and somehow got the door unlocked and left. And, uh, you know, of course, he felt horrible about it, uh, but he was slumbering. Well, the Father, God, Jehovah, never slumbers. He's always watching over us. It's emphatic in verse 4. He doesn't slumber or sleep, and these are two synonyms. 
in the Hebrew words are two synonyms like slumber and sleep are synonyms in English. Verse 6, he watches over us by day and by night. So as we go about our life's work and calling by day, while we take our rest at night, for the psalmist, because of God, the, the Lord's love and watchful care, he could, I'm thinking of David now, he could sleep at night, even during great trials. He remembered the Lord was watching over him. Do you ever read Psalms 3 and 4 in that regard? Aren't they wonderful? And Psalm 3, the, David says, I could lay down and sleep because the Lord was keeping me. You know, he's talked about all this trouble he was facing. And I think chapter 4, it's him waking up. And, you know, the Lord kept him through the night with all these enemies around. Verse 8, our going out and our coming in, he keeps us. He keeps us at home. He keeps us while we're at work. He keeps us in our normal place of safety and refuge, our home. He keeps us as we go forth into this world to face danger and troubles as we fulfill his calling in our lives. Whenever, wherever, whatever you're going through, trust Jehovah Jesus who is awake and aware and is watching over you. And even more than for all throughout our time in this world, for eternity, the last part of verse 8, the New King James has, and even forevermore. And uh, I did my own personal translation of this psalm, and, and I translated it, and moreover, for eternity. Now, sometimes if you say, and moreover, it's like an afterthought. Oh, yeah, this, this thing too. But that's... That's not how this Hebrew word's being used. <coughs> not in the sense, well, I almost forgot this, but, but it's more like, and here's my final point. This is the thing that is most important. This is the big point here, even forevermore. He always is going to keep us. He always is going to keep us. And this is why I believe the psalm all along is not just about earthly troubles and dangers, but also about spiritual and eternal troubles and dangers. We need Jesus Christ. We need the living and true God as our help. And the point of the Bible, the point of God's word, God's point to us is that only in Jesus Christ can we know God as our keeper and our help in the way this psalm celebrates. Have we trusted in Jesus Christ? Well, I believe everybody here has trusted in Christ, though I don't know who all might be uh, tuning in by the Internet here. But we do have to trust in Christ. If we want to claim the wonderful promise of this psalm that the Lord keeps us, it is in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are kept. We as Christians need to remind ourselves that in Christ we are kept by God, by our Creator. By the one who had the power to create all the universe, we are kept by his all-powerful grace. By the eternal and unchanging God of grace in Jesus Christ, we are kept and find him an ever-present help in trouble. The shade on our right hand and on our left as we come or as we go. And most of all, for all, all eternity, he will keep us in his grace and in his glory in Jesus Christ. Well, I, I, I want to close just by reading uh, part of our confession of faith from this morning. And I didn't know that was going to be in there this morning. 
Um, but I wanted to close this sermon tonight, uh, which I believe is one of the most wonderful confessional statements ever made. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Isn't this wonderful? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely and ready henceforth to live unto him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful what we can claim in Christ Jesus? Let's pray.